The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, we are rude, we are crude, yet somehow we are sophisticated. And we are coming back to you for another uh, journey into the uh, deep soul of rock and roll. Uh, I am Christopher O'Connor, based here in Houston, Texas. And uh, with me, as always, is uh, Arturo Andrade, coming in from Guangzhou, South Korea. What's going on there, Arturo? Everything's good here. Um, the weather's getting better. Um, I've been downloading a lot of new music lately. Most of it kind of sucks, but some of it's pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you weren't downloading new music, you wouldn't be alive, right? Right. And yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I teach English at a university uh, here in South Korea. So the new semester starts next week. So I've been on one hand, I've been getting ready for this episode. On the other hand, I've been preparing and lesson planning. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, welcome to my life. I'm getting married in two months. So like try, try, uh, try doing a job, a side job, a podcast, uh, a another class that my fiance and I do. And then, uh, and then, yeah, getting married, uh, having to do all that work. So, you know, it's been interesting. So, uh, that's about us personally. Uh, one thing to mention for all of you curmudgeon rock report loyalists, you know, all seven of you, uh, that, uh, a couple of weeks ago in our, uh, putting the old cows out to pasture episode, we, uh, we had some fun bagging on the who. And at the time I called them the why. And apparently they must have listened because this week uh, a a new, 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 new uh, bonus release or big release of the Who Sell Out has come out. And this one uh, I read uh, includes 47 or 46 total B-sides, demos, uh, outtakes, etc. And so uh, one of the most fun, interesting and Flat out awesome rock records of that era now has yeah. uh, about, I'm guessing probably five or six hours <laughs> of, of stuff to uh, uh, absorb. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing about that album, uh, the who, um, uh, the who sell out, uh, the, the version I have um, has a crap load of bonus tracks mm-hmm. and those bonus tracks are better than half of the songs on the actual album. Yeah, yeah, go um, figure. I, I, um, there, there's a, I forget which track. I think it's uh, the last track on the album, um, Rail One or Rail One, is basically the template for a lot of what he would do on Tommy uh, for their next record. Oh, sure. You yeah, know. you can definitely like, and, and you can hear a lot of Tommy, like I can see for miles, uh, yeah. you know, kind of a forerunner to some of the stuff he was doing on Tommy, too. So that's interesting. So uh, apparently they're uh, kind of doing what Neil Young's doing and emptying out the vaults. Uh, on, it's on about the, time. Yeah, I was about say. Time. they're such a great live band. You know, let's hear more live at Leeds type stuff. <laughs> sure, sure. And uh, 
hold that thought uh, before we uh, go very live uh, on this episode. Uh, as we always do, uh, let us foray make a foray into the contemporary. Uh, each of us on every episode rep- re- recommends an album that's come out in the last year or so that we love, that we think that you should love too. And so on that note, Arturo, uh, what is your album this week? Yes. My recommendation is not really a band. Um, it's really a one-woman musical project <laughs> called Waxahachie. Uh, she is really a singer-songwriter called Katie Crutchfield. Um, she's originally from Alabama. She now lives in New York, and she's been she's been around for a while. And um, her earlier records, uh, like 2013's Cerulean Salt, that was kind of like her critical breakthrough. And uh, she's been a critic's darling for a while. I mean, she she's performed on um, well, what's that radio station in Seattle? The one that- oh, KXP. Yeah, yeah, they, they KXP, right? They 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 put all their their uh, their um, when bands and artists visit their station and record, they they put all those performances on YouTube. And um, she, she's been around for a while, and her songwriting usually and her music usually is characterized by this really searingly emotional, honest, painful depictions of, of love and romantic relationships. I mean, I'm normally the kind of guy who says I'm sick of hearing love songs, <laughs> but uh, Katie Crutchfield is really, really good at it. Um, her, her, her lyrics, I mean, she, she really makes you feel like you're in there, like you're in the room, um, in, or in the room is not the right way to say, it, but really in her heart and brain. And she really makes you feel um, what she's feeling a lot. And that's a gift that a lot of songwriters just don't have. And she has it. Uh, musically, she's, it's very influenced by 1990s Liz Fair and all that very minimalist exile and Guyville type stuff. Um, and uh, very simple, not the, not the most complex musically, but she doesn't have to be because her songs are best served in simplistic form. Uh, however, this album from last year, St. Cloud, this is an album that uh, is a really good record. Um, I, I think it's her best album since 2013's uh, Cerulean Salt. It's a bit of a departure for her. Uh, two years prior to this record, uh, in 2018, she put out a blog. She wrote in a blog uh, for the 20th anniversary of Lucinda Williams' classic album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. You know, writing about how much that album was an inspiration to her and what it meant to her. Well, this album has got a huge Lucinda influence on it. It's very country rock, very folk rock, uh, more so than her previous stuff. It's it's basically Waxahachie gone slightly country, and it it really suits Katie Crutchfield's uh, lyrics and songcraft really well. Um, it really uh, her, her songs lend themselves to country rock. They really do. It's just seamless, uh, a, a seamless hybrid, and just a, a, a really natural uh, reference point for her. It's much better than her previous album, which came out uh, in 2017, which is like she was going for a big arena rock sound, and her songs really don't lend themselves to that. I mean, they're 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 way more intimate than that. And uh, Saint Cloud is it's, it's one of my my ten favorite albums from last year. And um, Waxahachie is just a really, really terrific, quote unquote, band slash musical project. And she's a great songwriter. So I highly recommend that.
now we go from Waxahachie to the least Waxahachie thing imaginable. Uh, uh, actually, Arturo turned me on to this one, and uh, it's one of uh, the more fun records I've heard uh, in the last year. Uh, this is an, from an Australian uh, band called The Chats. Uh, the name of the album is High Risk Behavior, and uh, this is wonderful as a throwback. Uh, well, the first thing is they do 14 songs in 28 minutes and seven seconds. And let me tell you, those seven seconds make the difference, man. Uh, this is one of those albums. <laughs> there's not a single wasted moment. Uh, you could make the argument. It's basically one song told in 14 parts. And uh, and it's 14 very uh, brief, uh, efficient, uh, it, lots of brevity. Uh, bash out little stupid punk songs by a bunch of bored 21 year olds. They're now 21. They formed in 2016 uh, when they were uh, 17. They're now all 21. They're Aussies, but they're a bunch of bored, obnoxious uh, punk kids who obviously, uh, I wouldn't call them the Ramones. They're kind of like the Ramones uh, who just learned to play their instruments. And so they have the, the, these really <laughs> catchy songs, not sophistication, but the same kind of uh, attitude and edge. And uh, it's a funny ass record. Uh, yeah, basically they won, they win me over in the opening song, which is called stinker with the, uh, the little uh, indicator. Fuck it. Uh, you know, it's not even, you know, I have it spelled in my notes as F A A H C K. It. So uh, that's essentially Fuck it. Fuck it. And so, I mean, but come on, this is the band. there. Uh, you got to love any band. They have a song called The Clap, which is indeed about the clap. <laughs> and the chorus yep. uh, is built on clapping. So, I mean, come on, man. You can <laughs> love anything that, that can just uh, associate with that. And, I mean, moreover, I think these kids need hobbies. I mean, they have one song called Drunken, Drunken Disorderly. They've got another one called Dine and Dash. And then perhaps the best song on their not my favorite, but maybe the best song on the record is is Pub Feed, uh, which is indeed an, <laughs> an ode to eating greasy food at a pub feed. Uh, I think my favorite song is Keep the Grubs Out, which is a, uh, a very fun uh, and very simple, uh, we are mocking an authority figure's voice. You know, oh, you know, we're complaining about the scum that's screwing everything up for our patrons at this uh, uh, at this venue and and. And, and raising all this ruckus. Oh, and uh, by the way, the scum all have mullets. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, yeah. it, it's a fun, it's, it's 28 minutes. It's just bashed out. Very simple, very um, almost dumb. And remember uh, one of our uh, guiding principles is that uh, dumb doesn't necessarily equal, equal bad. Actually dumb can be quite good and dumb is some of the best. Uh, this is a wonderful, dumb little record. And uh, I, Highly, highly, highly uh, recommend it because it will definitely put a smile on your face. And they're actually pretty yeah. good. Uh, they're actually a good band.
Now, Arturo, uh, this is the start of a three-episode celebration of live music. Absolutely. Here's the thing. Because of the coronavirus, live music has been essentially reduced to bands and artists recording videos of themselves performing in their homes and or their garages and just posting them on YouTube. I mean, that's fine. That's good. But if you miss the communal feeling of being at a rock concert, and obviously you can't or shouldn't go to to one now, right? The next best things are listening to live albums and watching concert films. So in today's episode, we, each of us, Chris and I, will give five awesome live album recommendations. And the next episode, we will deal with concert films. We'll each give five awesome concert films. And then after that, to wrap it all up, uh, we will have a very, very special, um, kind of a serious episode of, uh, of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Our mutual friend and science expert, Mike Eisenstein from Philadelphia, uh, will join us on this show. And, he, and we will talk about the long-term effects of COVID-19 on specifically the touring industry. And the reason we're having him on the show, uh, not the next episode, but the one after, is because he is a professional science journalist uh, who is currently under contract. He's a freelance journalist, and he's under contract um, with Johns Hopkins University uh, for exclusive coverage of the virus. And basically, his job is interviewing doctors and scientists and medical health experts from all over the country and some places in the world. And just basically writing about the virus and uh, um, any news about the virus, any findings about the virus, anything, anything regarding the virus. Uh, This guy's writing about it and he knows a lot about it. And he's also a big time music geek like us. So it's perfect to have him on the show. Uh, He will be uh, two weeks from now. He will he will be the guest episode. But for now. For today's episode, we're going to focus on live albums, and the next episode, focus on concert films, and then the next episode after that, we'll be wrapping it up and seeing, will there be a future for live music and live rock and roll? And we'll have the the virus expert, or the closest thing to a virus expert that we know. (laughs) The Curmudgeon Rock Report is a new entry into an increasingly vibrant podcast community. Our Little Rock Nerd podcast is driven by two things bringing our curmudgeonly worldview to life, and by the support of our listeners. That's why you can find us on Patreon, a wonderful site dedicated to providing a platform for artists of all stripes to offer extra services to fans and make well-earned income in the process. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. For $5, you can become an enthusiast. You'll gain access to our official downloadable show notes, bonus excerpts, video outtakes, mini-episodes, articles spun off from our episodes, the occasional transcript of the really good episodes, and more. More generally, you'll lend support to our cause and give us a little wind as we plumb the rock archives and scour the current scene. So check us out on Patreon today and learn why the artist economy is far from dead. All right, we're back. Let's see. Chris, are you ready for my uh, live, my, my five of my favorite live albums? Yeah, this ought to be this ought to be interesting. You know, Arturo knoweth of what he talketh about uh, on this subject. So uh, go right ahead, dude. All right, number five for me 
This is Lou Reed's old band, The Velvet Underground. And the, the name of the album is 1969, The Velvet Underground Live. Obviously recorded in 1969, released in 1974 by Mercury Records in order to capitalize on Lou Reed's popularity at the time. Remember, he had just released Transformer and the big hit Walk on the Wild Side, and he had the really successful rock and roll animal live album. Now, this particular recording is taken from two club shows from the Velvet's last tour, October 19th, 1969, at the end of Cole Avenue Club in Dallas, and November 25th, 1969, at the Matrix in San Francisco. I doubt these two clubs are still around <laughs> anymore, but who knows? I could be wrong. I don't, I don't think so either. <laughs> anyway, the Velvets didn't sell many records in their day, and they weren't popular at all on a mainstream level. I mean, now they're like one of the definitive American bands of all time. But back then, they, well, they really weren't. And you can tell by the chatter in the audience and the clinking of the glasses that there seemingly weren't more than 10 people at these shows. Like they were playing in front of very, very, very few people. And the first thing that separates this live recording um, from other routine rock live albums is the level of intimacy between the group and the audience. Before the, the band begins, you can hear Lou Reed chatting with the audience, asking them if they have a curfew tonight or not, you know, like leading them, leading him to ask, hey, you know, we can play two sets or one long set. Which, which one do you want? <laughs> Someone in the audience actually calls out one set and Lou Reed goes, okay, guys, okay, we'll play one set, <laughs> you know, and What's interesting about this is that Lou Reed was historically not one to chat with and be super friendly with the audience from stage. And you know, he was, you know, he usually was known to be pretty abrasive. So hearing this is pretty jarring and disarming, you know, Lou Reed being nice to people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah and, no, he's, he's a scary interview. I've, I've heard uh, stories from friends that he's pretty intense. Yeah. And then, and then after that, he shows his classic patented acerbic wit. And this is, an, this is an actual quote from the show, but right before the band begins, he goes, okay, so this is go, we're going to play one long set. So this is going to go on for a while. So we should get used to each other, settle back, pull up your cushions or anything else that makes life bearable in Texas. <laughs> you know? And just when he gets the audience groaning at that put down, then he ingratiates himself again. And by surprisingly, rather knowingly, talking about football with the crowd and about how the Dallas Cowboys blew out the Philadelphia Eagles earlier in the day. Yes, this show was played on a Sunday, you can tell. <laughs> so here you get to see Lou Reed being nice to the audience, uh, gently, mo gentle, gently mocking them, and then ingratiating himself with his football knowledge. It's Lou Reed as master MC and showman. <laughs> There you go. And, and keep in mind, he did go to Syracuse University, so he knows the area well. Our alma mater. Yes. Now, the other thing that separates this from other live albums is that it's a rare document of what this band sounded like live. Now, there are recordings of the early Velvets, you know, the Andy Warhol associated era with the exploding plastic inevitable multimedia light show, but they're extremely rare and of really low quality. This is as good as it gets in having a live document of, in my opinion, 
Well, they are one of the 10 greatest American bands of all time, in my opinion, number one, you know. And what you hear in this is the sound of a scintillating live band, a band that could work on so many levels and dynamics. They could do piercing, noisy, avant rock. They could do extremely lyrical, heart-tugging ballads and even some doo-wop. Lou Reed was a big doo-wop fan. They could do badass grooves that rivaled the Rolling Stones. Their studio albums were all phenomenal and startlingly influential. But the songs came alive in a live setting in a way that separated them from the studio versions and made them essential themselves. Um, moments of note that I recommend. Uh, towards the end of disc two, okay, um, what you get is a back-to-back -back punch of White Light, White Heat, and I Can't Stand It, where Lou Reed's and Sterling Morrison's guitars engage in something akin to like art rock pyrotechnics. What you come away with is that Lou Reed was a much better guitar player than he was given credit for. And Maureen Tucker's minimalist simplicity-based approach to drumming, sometimes without the cymbal, sometimes without even the hi-hat, was exactly what propelled this band a flashier, more virtuoso approach to drumming would have drowned the band's music. Uh, they were just bare bone, bare knuckled, kick-ass rock and roll. So highly recommend the Velvet Underground's live album. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely uh, agree uh, with that. They're, they they had a strange thing because they, uh, they had the chops, but they had an intimacy. And uh, I don't know. There was just, it, it translates really well. There's a, an intimacy and a, a, a real, not raw, I guess rawness would be that, but it, but it translates really, really well in those recordings, not in, in that album, but some of the other stuff I've heard, not just from uh, VU, but from uh, Lou Reed's uh, solo career too. So uh, definitely a good document. And uh the more I've grown up, I, I'm not a huge VU fan, but I do see them as maybe the single most influential uh, American rock band. Yeah. Uh, at, you know, uh, probably of all time. Uh, maybe not the best. I would say CCR, but v, VU is, is very close. So. Yeah. All right. And this leads us to the next. My next choice is a band directly influenced by the Velvet Underground. This is arguably, possibly my personal favorite rock and roll band of all time. R-E-M. Now, this is not a live album. This is not a live album. This is a bootleg. This is a bootleg of a show recorded July 14th, 1987 at the Music Centrum Concert Hall in Utrecht, Holland, or the Netherlands. Okay? This is a bootleg, which means you cannot find it on a streaming site, and you can't really purchase a CD of it unless you go to some dodgy website. Now, before I explain the selection, let me explain how you can listen to this. Okay. Do what I did. <laughs> Number one, go on Google and type REM plus Utrecht, U-T-R-E-C-H-T, plus 1987 plus setlist. Okay. Now, there are dozens of REM fan sites out there that list their gigography and their set lists. This is a widely bootlegged show, so I'm sure you'll find a site that'll show you this show's set list. Go on that website, look at the set list. Then go on YouTube, and this time on YouTube, type REM plus Utrecht plus 1987, and you'll see video links to the audio tracks 
of every song in this show. And you can listen to them in order if you want. And then listen to them at your leisure. Okay? Now, dropping knowledge. Yes. Now, why do I choose this? I'll tell you why. For a lot of people out there, especially younger rock music fans, R.E.M. were that band that played a lot of acoustic instruments, lots of ballads, and they're etched in stone as that band with the soft rock album classics Out of Time and Automatic for the People. Now, while those albums are indeed classics, especially Automatic, uh, which, by the way, recently number 92 in Rolling Stone's uh, 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. Should have been higher. Should have been higher. Uh, this particular live bootleg performance is a reminder that R.E.M. at one time rocked fucking balls. Oh, right. shit. They had a more direct line to punk rock and the punk ethos than their clear contemporaries, namely U2, The Smiths, and possibly even Chris's favorite band, The Cure. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> they <laughs> their punk ethos was demonstrated in their early years when they eschewed uh, conventional major label methods of promotion, you know, namely silly videos for MTV, overproducing their music for conventional rock radio. And they eschewed this by touring incessantly, basically hitting every college campus on the map and becoming darlings of underground and college radio. They eventually became a mainstream rock phenomenon, but they did it in their own way, paving their own way and not following the usual shortcut road toward rock stardom. Now, this show not only recorded very well, it's recorded really well, but it's also the sound of a band finding their footing as a genuine world-renowned rock band as they begin their imperial phase with the release of Document and their breakthrough singles, The One I Love and It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. And then starting here and on through 1988's Green with the single Stand and Orange Crush, they start to get played on rock radio alongside all the shittiest of shit metal that was prevalent at the time, right? This show, this show is a reminder that R.E.M. really were at one time the best band in America at that time, and the only band that could really provide a credible American answer to you 2 who were mega at that time. So uh, I highly recommend this REM bootleg show. Yeah, I, and that's something that I'll have to, to seek out. And again, you know, Professor Andrade dropping knowledge. Yeah, REM is one of the greatest uh, live, album, or live bands of all time. I mean, uh, their stuff, uh, I've always been a fan, and I always thought it was an incredibly underrated record. I've always been a fan of New Adventures and Hi-Fi. Great album, yeah. Yeah, because most of that record was recorded during sound checks. Yep. Uh, while they were on tour and you know, basically it's one or two takes or whatever, but yeah, it rocks the fuck out and it just shows the energy that that band had. Number three on my live album recommendation list. We're going way back here to the one and only Jimi Hendrix and his band of gypsies live album from 1970. Now this is recorded. I mean, I'm not going to explain and who Jimi Hendrix is. You should know who Jimi Hendrix is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you're listening to us, you know who Jimi Hendrix is. Right. So recorded over two nights, New Year's Eve, 1969, and New Year's Day, 1970, at the Fillmore East in New York. 
It was the first and last time Hendrix would be with an all-black backing band. You know, Buddy Miles on backing vocals and drums and old army buddy Billy Cox on bass. The result is very, very different from the smoldering psychedelic heaviness of the old Jimi Hendrix experience band. This was an era where R&B and soul music were mutating into funk, thanks to the influence of you know, people like James Brown and Sly Stone. And this influence is seamlessly integrated into Hendrix's new band as blues, rock, funk, R&B, and even call-and-response gospel-style vocals, uh, uh, especially with Buddy Miles on drums. He's a he, Buddy Miles is a revelation, by the way, on this record. Not only his drumming, but his vocals, just perfectly meshing his backup to Hendrix's vocals. But anyway, those styles all mix together in the most distinctive recording, studio or live, in Hendrix's entire catalog. You know, George Clinton and Funkadelic would later release their debut album later on this year. And yes, folks, they were deeply influenced by Hendrix and especially this album, this Band of Gypsies record. Worth the price of admission alone is the performance of Machine Gun. Not only a candidate for Hendrix's best song, but quite possibly his greatest guitar solo ever. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's definitely up there. Yeah. In his book, um, Chris Deeds is a very uh, renowned music critic from the UK. And uh, not too long ago, he published a book called Just a Shot Away, 1969 Revisited. Uh, it's basically his review of the year in music that year. And uh, he really, really goes on about Hendrix's Band of Gypsies and the recording of Machine Gun. So I'm going to give out a shout to Mr. Needs. Uh, if you're listening, I am quoting you. OK, this is a quote from Chris and it's, it's fantastic. It totally nails um, what Hendrix was going for in Machine Gun. Quote, if the Star Spangled Banner, as performed at Woodstock the past summer, caught the static in the air and reclaimed the American national anthem for hundreds of thousands sent to a far off land to face being blown to bits. Machine Gun came from the front line of what was actually happening. Although he had been playing it since the previous August, something happened on New Year's Day 1970 in that third band of gypsies set. Over the rhythm section's gut bucket rat-a-tat-tat, Jimmy almost shouts his desperation as a farmer dodging the bullets flying like rain while his guitar seethes, ebbs, and whirls around him like a luminescent snake in the carnivorous jungle, coursing with restless night agonies, gripped by a life of its own, straining at the leash. Rooted to the spot, Jimmy deploys his full arsenal of Vox wah-wah pedal, Roger Mayer Axis Fuzzbox, Fuzzface Univibe, and Mayer's Octavia Harmonizer. Yet another power seems at play as he harnesses some enormous supernatural power pulsing through his black Stratocaster into one flowing incandescent broadside. After several verses, the Octavia kicks up an oceanic roar out of which soars that single soul-shredding note that lands in Vietnam's killing fields, evoking the helicopters, napalm strikes, gun battles, and chilling sobs of dying victims in one jaw-dropping tour de force. For those few minutes, 
Hendrix doesn't so much play his guitar as let it channel an incendiary manifestation of what poet Wendell Berry once called millions of little deaths. After Buddy, uh, after Buddy Miles brings the track back to earth with his vocal, Jimmy's guitar bays and sobs like a wounded animal before one last death throw salvo. Bill Graham called it, quote, the most brilliant emotional display of virtuoso electric guitar playing I have ever heard, end quote. End quote to the Chris Needs quote. Yes, folks, you should listen to Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a tremendous uh, excerpt, and it's uh, it's apt. And now, uh, and it's you take Band of Gypsies and you combine it with the uh, the music and the songs that he recorded just before he died that got released in 1997 as first rays of the new rising sun. You take those in continuum; uh, it's a real loss when you think about what, what you have to consider where was Hendrix headed and what would Hendrix have done? Uh, Hendrix was clearly gravitating towards funk. R&B. Yep. It's like this mixture of rock funk R and B. And uh, he was in some ways, you know, who am I to say this, but in some ways I contemplate maybe he was getting in touch with his blackness. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Was, was very much, uh, you know, very much a product of that. So, I he tried to hear what Hendrix might have been doing in 1975 in my head, and mm. would have been there. So all the white acid kids would love the stuff from the 60s, and then he would be right there with George Clinton and Sly and uh, James Brown and all those guys as a funk master uh, in my head. And so, it just speaks to the loss. Yeah. When when he died. Yeah. In my opinion, Hendrix would have, I honestly, I think he would have gone on to do Prince before Prince. Probably. Yeah. It, yeah. it would have been something. Yeah. That would have been interesting because obviously, uh, you know, Prince has many interests, but clearly there's a Hendrix um, connection there uh, yeah. in, in, in spirit, but also in technique. So, yeah, again, it, and I'm, I'm glad that you read that excerpt because it, it, it does, there's a, a, a wistfulness uh, for me in thinking about what Hendrix was becoming and those two albums, uh, The Band of Gypsies and uh, First Rays of the New Rising Sun are just a real testament to that. So definitely check out that record. It's, it's, it's probably one of the best live albums that's ever been released. So. Yeah, for sure. Now, going on to my number two recommendation. This is Husker Du, The Living End. It's an actual live album that was released in 1987. Okay, now, last week I discussed seminal 1980s indie underground bands like the Meat Puppets and Dinosaur Jr. Well, Husker Du is another one of those bands, and arguably even more influential and important than them. Okay, they started out as a super loud, super fast, hardcore punk band in the early 1980s, and then they evolved and progressed into their own sound. Um, the element of hardcore anger and edge remained in the mix, but advancing their innovation into the realm of the transcendent were 1960s psychedelia, highly structured and melodic songcraft, emotionally gripping lyrics, sexually androgynous love songs. It was usually hard to tell whether the subject of the songs was male or female. 
and forays into Americana forms such as folk, country, and blues. What Husker Du basically did was help create the template for what would be known as alternative rock. They would be a catalyst for the grunge movement, while at the same time practically invent the subgenre known as pop punk. Husker Du were a touchstone band for not just Nirvana, the Foo Fighters, and Weezer, but also for Green Day and Blink-182. And the Foo Fighters and Green Day especially being drastically watered-down, middle-of-the-road, streamlined versions of Husker Du. Now, what's the problem? Well, the problem is the sound quality of their records was abysmal. Cheaply produced with guitars and drums poorly microphoned, vocals often buried in the mix, extremely thin, tinny, processed drum sound. Imagine like getting a pen and patting it to the palm of your hand. That's what their drums sounded like on record. Um, even thinner sounding guitars with overloaded static. This wasn't just a result of being on a small indie label, SST at the time. This problem carried over when they moved to Warner Brothers and released albums through them. They retained the shitty sound quality. Now, while the poor sound quality may have been an, an aesthetic choice and a statement against the overproduced, big-sounding radio rock of the day, it hasn't served their music well. It's the main reason, in my opinion, why their albums and music aren't as currently revered as those of some of their peers, such as Sonic Youth or R.E.M. Now, I recommend this live album, The Living End, recorded during various shows on their last U.S. tour before they broke up, because this is what Husker Du really sounded like. Clear, loud, intense, insanely rocking, with barely a second going by between songs. Husker Du shows were like physical endurance tests, not just among the band members themselves, but for the usually slam-dancing crowd. You know, they were joyous, emotionally moving experiences, not unlike The Who at their absolute peak. So yeah, highly recommend The Who. Husker Du's The Living End. I'll second that. Uh, I'm not a huge Husker Du fan, but I, you know, I like... Uh, their stuff. And I, I will admit, yeah, like I said, Bob Mould basically did invent uh, a genre and he even invented a mood. I, I think we both joked before that uh, Dave Grohl ought to just uh, give 10% of his royalties from Foo Fighters to Bob Mould. Uh, 30, 30, 40. Yeah, 33%, you know, something like that, 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 that you know, obviously uh, there's, uh, there's a hook there. And you know, arguably, like you said, that uh, Husker Du, uh, you know, they're, like their prime time is what, like 83 to 88, maybe a little bit later than that. But uh, you broke up in 87. Yeah. yeah. So it's like that early to mid eighties period, but like a lot of the bands that came out of Seattle and a lot of the bands that came up in the early and mid nineties, direct descendants of, of Husker Du. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Same thing with Dinosaur Jr. I mean, it's like those two bands uh, and like Sonic Youth. And there's like a, a handful of those bands that basically, they're doing their things in the, the mid and late eighties. And then 10 years later, you know, everybody is obviously influenced by them and it, you know, you just can't hide it. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a Testament. And, but that the, like what you described and I'll get into that in, in my uh, uh, list a little bit later, but there's these bands that have this history of really terrible productions and then they yeah. really 
five albums and it like reveals to the world like, oh shit, you know, I better go see their shows, you know? Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, definitely Husker Du is 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 on that list. Um yeah, Bob Mold is a, is an interesting dude. Uh you know, fairly eccentric, but uh definitely uh in like the top one percent of, of rock influencers. So good call. All right, now we move on. Finally, number my number one live album recommendation, and we're going even older than Jimi Hendrix. We're going with one of the original rock and rollers, Jerry Lee Lewis, live at the Star Club Hamburg, released in 2004, recorded in 1964. Exactly May 5th, 1964, at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany. The same Hamburg, by the way, where the Young Beatles cut their teeth and their chops before they went back to England and continued on to world domination. Yeah. What a history, huh? (laughs) No shit. This is not just my number one pick for live albums of this episode. This is not just my all time favorite live album. This is, and I'm going to put it out front right now, the greatest live album ever recorded period. This is the greatest live album in the history of recorded rock and roll. Now, this period of time when Jerry Lee Lewis recorded this, it was a professional nadir in his, is it nadir or nadir? Nadir. Nadir. A professional nadir in Lewis's career. Now, Several he's, years. Yeah. He is not, he's not Ralph Nader. He's not Ralph Nader. <laughs> Several years previously, a scandal broke out over how he married his 13-year-old cousin and his career was damaged. He basically, around this time, he was basically making his money being a constant, constantly touring musician and playing with any pickup band he could find. His records didn't sell anymore. In addition, Beatlemania was running wild at this time. And 1950s style rock and roll, although hugely influential on the Beatles themselves, wasn't really a hot commodity at the time. So on this night, he was in the middle of a European tour and the Nashville teens were a a garage rock band who were in the middle of a residence, doing a residence at the Star Club. So for one night only, Lewis got the Nashville teens to be his backing band and he utilized them. Now, I don't know whose idea it was to record this particular show and it was recorded extremely well. But what ensued that night is revelatory. Now, I'm going to quote someone else this time. This time, instead of my description, the best description I've read about this live album is from Stephen Thomas Erlewine from allmusic.com. I'm going to shout out to Mr. Erlewine. I am quoting you from your allmusic.com entry for this particular live album. Here we go. Words cannot describe or cannot contain the performance captured on Live at the Star Club Hamburg, an album that contains the very essence of rock and roll. Live at the Star Club is extraordinary, the purest, hardest rock and roll ever committed to record. It starts with The Killer, that's Jerry Lee Lewis's nickname, launching into Mean Woman Blues at a tempo far faster than the band is prepared for, and he never, ever lets go from that moment forward. He pounds the piano into submission, singing himself hoarse, berates the band. Uh, What did I say part two has him yelling at one of the Nashville teens to play that thing right, boy. 
<laughs> he increases the tempo on each song and joins in with the audience chanting his name. It's a crazed, unhinged performance with the Nashville teens running wild to follow his lead. And it's a great testament to the band members that they nearly managed to keep up with him. One of the profound pleasures of this record is hearing the band try to run with Jerry Lee, which is exceeded only by the sheer dementia of the killer's performance. He sounds possessed, hitting the keys so hard it sounds like they'll break, and rocking harder than anybody had before or since. Compared to this, thrash metal sounds tame, the stooges sound constrained, hardcore punk seems neutered, and the sex pistols sound like wimps. Rock and roll is about the fire in the performance, and nothing sounds as fiery as this. Nothing hits as hard or sounds as loud either. It is no stretch to call this the greatest live album ever, nor is it a stretch to call it possibly the greatest rock and roll album ever recorded. Even so, words cannot describe the music here. It truly has to be heard to be believed. Yes, this is the greatest rock and roll, sorry, greatest live rock and roll album of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's 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 very hard to uh, disagree. It's certainly one of the best. The thing about it is, it's a recording of one of the masters and one of the most raw, just pure talents. And not only that, but characters in the history of rock and roll. I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis is now eighty-five years old. Uh, the 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 most surprising word in that entire sentence I just said is is he is yeah. eighty five years old. Uh, yep. Jerry Lewis, you know, obviously, I mean, a lot of people on this podcast will probably know is the king of the drunks in rock and roll. I mean, he it's like between him and Ozzy for that for that title, basically. But uh, what an extraordinary performer! I mean, just as an athlete, I mean, his the way he could play the piano uh, very well, very crisply. And not, it wasn't like Little Richard, who was just banging on on the keys while he was doing this thing. Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> was a fucking uh, virtuoso. I mean, he he's a he's an artur while he's like practically like doing a handstand on his fingers while he's playing and you know, hopping all around and you know hair going all over the place and like you said, you know, just uh, excoriating the band and and doing all of this and uh, but it makes for just brilliant music and brilliant rock and roll. I mean, look, rock and roll was not supposed to be restrained uh, it, you know, in, in spirit. And so, look, Jerry Lee Lewis, in a lot of ways, um, there's like a handful of people, maybe like maybe a dozen that I could think of off the top of my head that is rock and roll. You know, there's him, there's Chuck Berry. Yep. There's Keith Richards. Uh, Keith Richards. Yeah, yep. exactly. Keith Richards. And then a, a bunch of others. Uh, that you can think of like Robert Plant and just a few a few other folks, James Brown. But uh, J- Jerry Lee Lewis is on that very, very short list. And uh, uh, just, uh, I mean, just a, an amazing uh, performer. Uh, and yeah, that, that Hamburg show, uh, that's not lightning in a bottle. It's kind of like, uh, where were you when you saw the Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> kind of the equivalent yeah. of that. You know, it's like seeing Bigfoot out in the woods. Um and you just marvel at it. So, yep, got to give it up for Jerry Lee Lewis, one of the greats. The COVID-19 blues sure have us missing live music. We're giving live album recommendations on this week's episode, but join us next week as Chris and I each give our recommendations for concert films. 
Chris will probably lean toward the classics, and I'll come up with more modernish contemporary fare. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Now, All right, we're back from the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and now it is Chris's turn to give his live album recommendations. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, this is this this will be fun. Now, uh, one thing to note about uh, my albums, uh, I think it it speaks to my uh, tastes in rock and roll and and music uh, in in general, and it's as much about the show as it is about uh, about the music. And uh, and list has a mix of uh, brilliant uh, technicians. But it also uh, has uh, shtick and feel and uh, cult of personality uh, within it. Now, uh, one thing to note about my list is that none of these are actual concerts. It's not like the Jerry Lewis or, or REM ones that uh, are uh, Arturo mentioned. Uh, these are stitched uh, together to seem like they're one concert or were intended always and advertised always as uh, compilations or sort of uh, span of time. And in a few of these instances, they uh, mark uh, several shows uh, in a row on a tour or uh, hastily assembled uh, like four or five shows for the purpose of making these records. Uh, but uh, I will say this, they, they're very well done and, uh, I think you know all, they all deserve uh, this, these props. Now, the other thing about these albums too, and I think Arturo will agree with that his list probably does the same thing. They all start awesomely fucking well. Uh, so if yeah. all you heard was the first song, then that's all you would need. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's the mark of a good uh, live album. They have to start incredible. The good ones they always start incredibly well, and they always end incredibly well. Uh, and so, uh, they have to hit you in the mush, uh, and, uh, the best ones uh, do and my favorite ones do. So, uh, without further ado, hey, Arturo, do you want the best? Yeah. You got it. Uh, it's Kiss. I want the, the best. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You wanted the best. You got the best. Uh, and this is Kiss Alive or as some people call it, Kiss Alive 1 from 1975. Uh, this album is one of the greatest magic tricks in the canon of formal rock releases. And uh, to explain that one, now, this uh, professes to uh, document a Kiss show, a Kiss Live show. But it's a well-known it was a well-known uh, rumor and myth for a long time. And like in 2003, Paul Stanley finally admitted it and Gene Simmons uh, that there's quite a bit of overdubbing uh, on this record, that the only uh, component of this live album that is truly all actually live is Peter Chris's drumming. Uh, and so uh, it turns out that while they might've been possibly the greatest show in the history of rock and roll. Uh, it turns out they had a, a, a tendency to uh, go in and out of tune. And if they were singing their vocals, maybe not exactly singing into the mic. Uh, so yeah. 
Showmen, yes. Uh, smart technicians uh, and consummate professionals, maybe not. Uh, that said, you know, they had they did put on a hell of a show. Uh, I talked to Kim Simmons, uh, the one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and uh, the uh, the leader of Savoy Brown. This was back in 2004. Uh, he lived north of Syracuse, New York, where I'm from, and. Savoy Brown, they came out of that psychedelic blues scene in 1968 where they were all refined and kind of, you know, highbrow, snooty. You know, we know the blues and we can all play and we're note for note. Well, Kiss's first American tour was opening for Savoy Brown, which is, in Kim Simmons' estimation, the worst thing that ever happened to Savoy Brown because Kiss would come out and open it up and blow everybody the fuck away. And then Savoy Brown would come out and they would just bore the shit out of everybody. So uh, this was one of several... Kisses tours when they first came out that they actually got disinvited from for upstaging and <laughs> showing up the uh, the opening band, which obviously yeah. wasn't their fault. But uh, because the, you, they had you know the the makeup and the you know the, the the characters you know the cat and the demon and all of that and the fire and you know Paul Stanley's you know goofy shit. I mean it's it's corny, it's goofy, but it's wonderful. Uh, and so you take all of that. And you want to document it, and they did uh, in this record. Now, even despite the um, the overdubbing, it is an amazing uh, listen and really well done. And one of the reasons they did this was that they were on Casablanca Records, which was in the middle of going broke in the mid seventies. And so you combine that with the fact that their first three records all flopped, and Probably deservedly so, because they all sound like shit and not particularly <laughs> produced. I like and, those records. Hey, I, I like those early albums. Yeah, I do too. Um, they sound like shit, but they're, they're, you know, like the first record, the, the eponymous one is great, uh, especially, but uh, they're just not, they were known as a great live band and they had that reputation for the show. Uh, and they actually did draw some fans, but they weren't selling any records. And so this was the idea of, well, let's do this live record that actually captures, you know, how awesome they are live and, and how actually, you know, they sound really strong. And lo and behold, they pull it off despite all the overdubbing. Uh, really, really great record. Um, the highlight of this record is the version of 100, uh, 100,000 Years, uh, which is a song from the first record. Uh, just it's. It's a banger. It's it's basically this is heavy metal musical theater at its best. Uh, the song itself, but the recording on this record, especially uh, uh, awesome solo from Ace Frehley. And then it has my favorite drum solo on a live record, non Neil Peart division uh, ever. Uh, and Peter Chris non John Bonham, you mean? Well, and non John Bonham, but yeah, non non Neil Peart, non John Bonham, non the obvious Peter Chris. Uh, his drum solo on Hundred Thousand Years from Kiss Alive is is the thing of legend. It's this sort of it goes on for like four or five minutes, and it's just awesome. And you know, you got to give it up for Peter Chris because, like I said, it's one of the well, only four minute streaks on the record that actually is all live. So, uh, and then of course the the other. Uh, the thing about a hundred thousand years too, it has for me, my favorite highlight on the entire record. It's basically, it's in the middle of coming out of this uh, drum solo, 
Paul Stanley's on the stage and he he looks and he goes, I want to know how many people over here get high. It's weird coming from them because neither Simmons nor Stanley were drug users at all. Oh, I know. And that's that's what makes it funny. And it just kind of but, but, but it's very mid 70s arena rock. And so uh, this is one of the great documents to the live experience, the theater of rock and roll. And uh, who cares if half of it is overdubbed? It is awesome, and it hits hard. Uh, you know, the uh, the record uh, starts with uh, with uh, Deuce and uh, and Strutter back to back, and it's just it just hits you right in the face right from the beginning, and uh, you just get that experience. And then uh, I suspect that the the fans were also stitched together, but man, I mean. It's got to be one of the great audience tracks in all of these live albums too, right? I mean, you can yeah. just the, – the fans sound like they're having the time of their lives. Yeah, you know, it's like – When you have like, you know, um, Kabuki Theater with fireworks and special effects, of course you're going to be having a good time at that show. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, then. Moving on. Uh, so the Before. next one on my list, yes, uh, the next one. And uh, this is uh, – Kind of a surprising entry to me, but it's an album that I've learned to love over the years. It's uh, Bob Dylan and the bands before the flood. And let me explain this one. So this album is released in 1974. And it's a compilation of mostly of two or, yeah, I believe it's might be three uh, Los Angeles shows uh, that uh, Dylan and the band uh, did. Uh, together. Now, uh, by this point, the bloom is off the rose from everybody. Uh, you know, Dylan, <laughs> yeah. Dylan has been on a streak uh, up to this point of about five years where he is not just, he's maybe not phoning it in, but he gets cute and he's, yeah. he's experimenting with country and, you know, the man and me and Quinn the Eskimo and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And so he's cute and adrift. And then meanwhile, the band, uh, which was always really good. I mean, the, the music never really dropped off, but they're in a street where not only are they starting to absolutely hate each other's guts, but now they're all developing various uh, chemical dependencies. And so uh, at this mm-hmm. point, you know, like I said, you know, Dylan comes around in the early sixties, obviously the band got their renown from being his, uh, his backing band. And then they break up in the late sixties by 74, they might as well be old timers. Um, and which is ironic because 1975, 76, they both have a revival. Uh, and then the other thing to point out here too, is that also in 1974, Dylan releases the record planet waves, uh, which what he recorded with, what was his backing band, the band. And this is the same year as this album. Now planet waves, this ought to tell you everything. Good, you good, out, good album. Yeah, it's not bad. Planet waves is a good album. Yeah, it's not bad. It's most well known for Forever Young, uh, both the fast version and the slow version. Although, to, for what it's worth, uh, the Rod Stewart cover is better than either of those, or it's a better listen. Uh, but it's a lot about yeah. where they were that they do a, a studio record, they tour on it, and none of the songs from the studio record are on the live record. So that ought to tell you about where it is, you know, when in doubt, stick to your old stuff. And they do it extremely well on this record. Uh, 
it's it's a fun record because it's a lot of old, mostly Dylan's older stuff. They do a lot from Blonde on Blonde, which makes sense because Robertson was involved in those uh, sections. But th- this is at the point where uh, Danko and uh, uh, Levon Helms are so good, they can do no wrong. And so they're like the best rhythm section, really fun rhythm section. And so you combine this sort of like little hip country hop in their uh, rhythm sections with Dylan is in this beginning of his phase where he up speaks every line uh, that he sings, you know, think the idiot yeah. uh, effect that actually made the, uh, the session musicians all laugh, according to Alex Ross of the New York times. Uh, and so a lot of that is going on on this record. And so it's just sort of a document of guys that never lost the talent, but maybe lost the motivation. And this is sort of the sound of, perhaps them getting it back because obviously, like we said, you know, 1975, you know, Dylan finds his footing again, blood on the tracks and then desire after that. And then uh, 76, you know, the band and 77, 78, they finally get their due from the last waltz uh, recording in San Francisco. And so this is right before that. So it's kind of a document of uh, these guys in the ditch and, uh, on a little bit of a descent or a little bit of a dip, but it's a, it's a great listen. The highlight is the version of rainy day women, number 12 and 35, which is really fun because, you know, obviously the, uh, uh, the original is sea shanty kind of like messy folk where on, on this, there's just this little, uh, fun Levon Helm drum, uh, gal, it's like, you know, and so it's it's like this peppy version of Rainy Day Women, you know. It's 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 almost like something from Sesame Street. Uh, it's like you know the uh, it, you know the, the the happy go lucky version of Rainy Day Women, and uh, and so yeah, definitely worth definitely worth checking out. Um, and uh, uh, good listen. And those two again, I, for whatever reason, uh, they always seem to do their best stuff when they work together. In some respects, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, Dylan in the band, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I know I trashed on Dylan <laughs> in our, in our cows trilogy, telling him they should be put out to pasture, but, but listen, man, <laughs> but, uh, exactly. You know, from 1963 to 1967, the, the man could do no wrong. I mean, he, 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 he had probably the best decade of any rock and roll artist outside the Beatles, you know? Um, yeah. Everything he did was a five-star album classic. And um, the band, their their first two albums are amazing. Um, Music from Big Pink and the self-titled album. Um, From Stage Fright onward, like you said, their inspiration waned definitely. I think drugs had a a big part of that. But this, what you see here, um, is the precursor to... Uh, what would happen later? A couple of years later, when they, when the band did the last, the, the Martin Scorsese movie, The Last Waltz. So uh, I think this is this is kind of like a part one to that, the way I see it. So uh, the next one I, I will cover uh, comes from Frank Zappa. Now, mm-hmm. starting in 1988, uh, he had gotten to the point where he had been around for uh, by that point years professionally, uh, and had been, you know, he was a constant tourer because he's not a guy that like, you know, sold a bazillion records. And so now he's at the point where he's nearing the end of his career and, and his life. And so he's looking back at his vaults 
And so starting in 1988, uh, he releases a series of what back then would have been known as box sets, uh, 12 CD set or whatever. It's like some enormous thing uh, called You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore. And so the one that I find best and most intriguing and the one worth talking about the most is the, the first volume of that series. So you can't do that on stage anymore. Volume one. Uh, Zappa, as we know, is one of the brightest and most talented uh, musicians that ever uh, existed in rock. And it was one of these things where rock was not ideal for a talent like Zappa, but was perfect for the personality. So he, if he wanted to, he could have played it straight and been there with Leonard Bernstein probably because he, he, you know, he, uh, everything that he ever performed, he had sheet music for. I mean, there's not a whole lot of improv in Zappa, amazingly enough. Uh, but he's out there doing all this goofy, dumb, stupid, misogynistic shit. And, uh, you know, some of it, a lot of it gets called satire, but, uh, but a lot of it's just stupid. And a lot of it is just childish. And some of that is actually record, uh, captured on this uh, this set. Uh, extraordinary uh, historical document. Uh, it spans from 1969 all the way through 1984. And and so it's it's the collection of all the musicians that you know he ever worked with. I mean, there's there's Adrian Ballou and Steve Vai and Ruth Underwood, who you know all behold the power of Ruth Underwood. She's the vibraphone xylophone uh, percussionist who uh, his most famous stuff uh, she's you know let's just put it this way um you ain't lived until you heard live xylophone in a rock record and uh that's uh, on display in this record here but it alternatively it goes back and forth between these sort of like uh really complicated and complex goof, but and but in still some ways charmingly goofy uh, rock symphonic things with Zappa absolutely shredding on guitar, which he could do as well as anybody who ever lived. Uh, but then there's these points that if, if there's criticisms to be had of Zappa, there was this sort of uh, almost uh, 12 year old boy quality that ran through not only him, but the musicians that played with him. And so there's an extended like five minute segment of, uh, a couple of guys in his band uh, uh, talking in very graphic terms about what they want to do out in the hallways and in the hotels and after the shows to uh, women and uh, all of the acts and, and all of those things. And then actually, and it's the highlight of the record um, because it's so, uh, there's a tension in it. There's a, a medley uh, that's recorded in the Hammersmith in London in uh, the mid seventies medley of a lot of that stuff from apostrophe, you know, uh, I, I called it the nanosy. So it's like, you know, sort of, uh, don't eat the yellow snow, uh, Nana loves it. Uh, San Alfonso's pancake breakfast and a lot of that stuff. It's, it takes like 15 or 20 minutes. But at, at one point when they're in the middle of doing Nana rubs it, even Zappa, he wants, uh, the audience to do a participation thing and kind of, mirror his motions and this, this is sort of the uh you know when he gets into the whole pouncing it and pouncing it again and all of that he even says that this is so stupid and we're going to all be stupid and this will be really stupid and so he kind of uh gives the best argument for why 
half of his stuff that a lot of his admirers call satire is not really satire. It's just stupid. And, uh, but it's glorious. Toilet humor. Yeah. It's, it's toilet humor. It's basically it's potty humor and it's, you know, basically it, and a lot of it is potty humor. A lot of it is, is dick humor. And for some reason, uh, the man had an obsession with maybe not groupies themselves, but with the idea of groupies. Uh, so there's a lot of that, but the musicianship in that, uh, in that medley or that suite is incredible. Uh, the guitar playing, you know, the, uh, like I said, the xylophone and vibraphone stuff is just remarkable. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of San Alfonso's pancake breakfast, um, just because it's, it's silly, but it's, it's remarkably technically sound. So, like I said, it's, a, it's like two hours and 15 minutes of, of uh, music. It's really great, like, nap music, <laughs> you know, and um, it's a great exploration. But it's basically Zappa at his very, very best and his very, very worst on stage. And so the sweep of it, it's it almost feels like a historical document. And there's this is the broadest of this. It's almost like... It, it, there's stuff from London, New York, LA, Germany, uh, all over Europe and, and the U S like, like one of the recordings is from New Jersey, uh, and all of this. And so it really does kind of, it is like a career retrospective and he was able to do five more of these, <laughs> you know, he got all the way up to yeah. uh, you know, before he died. So, um, God bless Frank Zappa, but you know, there's some downside, which by the way, in a future episode, we will be talking about more in detail. So. Yes. Yeah. My, my take on Zappa is uh, generally, generally speaking, I do like his music. Generally, uh, I think from the from the mid 60s all the way to the mid 70s. I like most of that stuff that he did. Um, I prefer his instrumental, his instrumental jazz fusion, jazz rock, progressive rock side. Uh, I, I think that I, to me, that's the best of Zappa. Like I, I, I think Hot Rats which is all instrumental. That's his best album. King Kong, um, yeah, that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, like, but the thing with Zappa, from the mid-set, from starting in the late 70s onward, lyrically, he just delved way too much into toilet humor. Um, it's like, if you, if you go through Zappa's catalog, the guy really didn't like women. He had nothing positive to say about women, unless it was in the context of being a sex-crazed groupie. Zappel was obsessed with groupies. He was. I mean, he fucked a lot of groupies. He when he was even when he was married, like he, he he was he had constant affairs. Uh, he had you know he he caught you know, venereal diseases several times. Um, yeah, but anyway, like yeah, he's yeah. For, lyrically, Zappa was not kind to women. He had nothing good to say about women in his music. Even though he, Ruth Underwood was a longtime member of his touring band. But it, he never expressed it in his lyrics. And musically, I think from the late 70s onward, I think his music got worse. I think he got a little too, like, he, he, he got, it began to sound like cartoon music. Yeah. Really. I on, uh, the next record. And uh, this, yeah, this one, you know, it's it just in the last couple of years that this one came back on my radar. Uh, Led Zeppelin's How the West Was Won. Uh, now, this was released in 2003, and what this record is, and I'm not going to, like, with, uh, as Arturo did with Hendrix, I'm not going to, you know, spend too much energy telling you who Led Zeppelin is, because if you 
don't know who they are, you're not listening to this podcast. Uh, so this was released in 2003, and it combines or it's a hybrid of two shows that they did uh, back to back in June of 1972 in Los Angeles. And coincidentally, if you haven't figured it out, Los Angeles was getting a lot of really good fucking shows in the early seventies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of great music came from there too. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I know. And so, yeah, that's what I mean. A lot of great music came from there, but a lot of music was passing through town uh, during that, during, during that period. Now this record, I really think should be subtitled uh, in which Zeppelin, uh, Zeppelin bashes the fuck out. Uh, that's really what it is. It's, uh, they were a remarkable live band that, you know, that look, their studio records. Yep, their studio records are very, very strong. Um, but, you know, the live uh, arenas, they couldn't be contained. I mean, John Bonham really was that powerful. Uh, Jimmy Page really could uh, make guitar sing, but also get that intense sort of tone that he had and it all is there. And in this album, again, you want, I think has the greatest start of any live album I've ever heard because it, it starts with it. They call it LA drone, but it's essentially them sort of tuning up and then it goes right into the immigrant song, which just absolutely. I remember the first time I heard it, I was in my car in Phoenix, Arizona and I put it on and I swear it absolutely just exploded like dynamite out of my dashboard. And almost like blew my hair back. Uh, it just awesomely powerful. And it also proves that one, John Bonham uh, is the single most powerful drummer I've heard uh, in my life. And nobody ever screamed as well in rock and roll with Robert Plant. Uh, there's a lot of screamers out there. Uh, but Robert Plant made it work. There's actual real emotion. There's actual interpretation. There's actual raw sexuality and feeling. And so, like, his screaming and his high notes on this record uh, just really are awesome. Robert Plant, his scream is based in the blues. It's got a bluesy soul. Yeah. uh, So the other highlights on this record, just to uh, go through this, are uh, the versions of Since I've Been Loving You and Dancing Days. Uh, Since I've Been Loving You, obviously, is probably the, one of their best songs. Anyway, it's a blues cover, but it's some of Paige's best soloing and some of Paige's best singing in the, um, in the Zeppelin catalog, and it's absolutely enhanced here where there's just, you can just tell that they're just lost in the emotion uh, of it, and they're just really locked in together, and it's just an awesome performance, and uh, that really is sort of quintessential Zeppelin. However, the the real highlight of the record for me is Dancing Days, and so this is 72. Mm-hmm. This is before uh, Houses of the Holy is released, and so ever wonder how Dancing Days might play if you took the keys out of it, if you took that silly uh, uh, organ or uh, whatever that uh, keyboard thing is that's going on there and it was just the guitar uh well that's dancing gets on this record and man is it awesome i mean it's a three it's one of those lightning in a bottle three and a half minute pop songs anyway but on this it swings it bashes it growls but it does it all smoothly and then the end of it it's just nasty ass coda 
solo from Jimmy Page. And so, I mean, this is, uh, again, quintessence of Zeppelin and just blows from the speakers. And 1972 Zeppelin uh, is about as good as it gets uh, for live uh, performance in, in rock. So uh, definitely go check out How the West, uh, West Was Won. This is uh, uh, definitely, I think, probably one of the 10 greatest live albums I've ever released. Then I left my favorite live album uh, for last. Yes. Um, you know, we, we each have our idiosyncrasies uh, with these things. You know, uh, Arturo named Jerry Lee Lewis as his favorite. Mine, and perhaps one of Arturo's too, is uh, Built to Spills Live. Absolutely. Yeah, and the thing about it with that record, uh, it comes out in 2000. Now, Built to Spill, uh, m- some of you and many of you may not actually know Built to Spill that well. So they are uh, uh, at first a three-piece, and then they would occasionally become a five-piece live. But they are from Boise, Idaho. Uh, the band leader is a guy named Doug Marsh, who is one of the single greatest guitar that's ever been unleashed in uh, uh, indie, at least certainly on indie albums, but I think in all of, of rock uh, history. He just had a um, a brilliance uh, to him and a, um, uh, a there's almost a gymnastics going on with like, there's all these time signatures. He had a mind for how he could extract uh, uh, expression out of the guitar uh, that Maybe not on a par with with Hendrix, but it's kind of like a more technically sound, more, I guess you could say classically trained version of Neil Young. It's same emotion with better technical chops. Do you know Uh, know how I always describe Built to Spill to me? It's if Neil Young fronting Jane's Addiction and trying to write songs like Pavement. <laughs> I mean that's that that's actually pretty fair. Uh, although I think that at one point we uh, we said it's like Neil Young and Blind Melon playing together too. Uh, in- uh, yeah, I, I've always felt, especially in Perfect from now on, I've always felt a Jane's Addiction influence in the. Uh, oh in yeah, especially in that record. But so for context, so you've got this little band from Boise. Uh, they get a following from this uh, remarkable record that they recorded in uh, one of the guys' basement or barn or something called There's Nothing Wrong With Love from 1994 or 1995 that 94. 94. Catches a, it, it catches a cult following. It gets them a major label deal. They make this album called Perfect From Now On, which is a prog rock uh, masterpiece, you know, post-70s prog rock masterpiece, but it didn't sell very well. So now... They're on Warner Brothers Records. It's 19, they're heading into 1999. And so there's a lot on the line for them. And so they go into uh, the studio in 1999, swinging for the fences. And they come up with one of my favorite uh, albums of all time called Keep It Like a Secret. And this is, it take the prog rock ethic, you know, the time signatures, the, uh, the adventuresomeness and all that, and then distill it all down into four minutes pop songs, <laughs> you know, four minute commercial radio rock, uh, format. It's also a really, it's also a really loud album to me. It's like, that's like built to spills arena rock record. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's an incredibly loud record, but incredibly well played, but beautiful too. I mean, a lot of good melodic stuff going on there uh, as well. And some great lyrics and some great concepts. So they're touring behind keep it like a secret 
uh, in, when they're recording this album live. And again, they're swinging for the fences. Uh, so in one trip to New York, they uh, made an appearance on Conan O'Brien or Conan O'Brien's Late Late Show or whatever it was called at the time. Uh, and they also were invited to uh, record a, a segment for uh, an HBO show called Reverb, which was recording in, recorded in Irving Plaza in uh, Manhattan uh, in early in 1999. Five of the tracks on this record come from uh, that performance. Uh, the others are called from performances in Seattle and Denver. And so what this is, is it's guitar art on the stage. And it's you know very, very loud, but very, very uh, uh, adventuresome, very uh, ambitious. And it's really, really clever and well-designed. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that in a couple of these cases, because they knew the stakes, that they actually rehearsed what they did, uh, wow. which seems kind of amazing that they were able to rehearse it and then actually do it. Uh, but there's all these uh, three guitar workouts and, you know, March is, is just brilliant. Uh, on the albums, he does all the parts, but here he's got a co-equal as a talent in Jim Roth. And so the two of them, and then occasionally a guy named Brett Netson comes in. He's their, uh, he's their really wacky guy that does all the bottle slide stuff. And so they put together throughout the record these amazing guitar interchanges, sort of not necessarily double solos, but kind of like, I wouldn't call them solos, but they're like three lead parts stitched together uh, in arrangements. And it's just, it's powerful, it's loud. It's awesome. It's virtuosic. Uh, and it's just, and it's intense. Uh, there's a cover of uh, Cortez the Killer on there, uh, which uh, is about 20 minutes long. But there's a beautiful, the second half of it essentially is, is a dissolve. And it's like a, uh, uh, a, a very structured dissolve. And uh, again, it's it's beautiful. Uh, they uh, it's interesting because there's only like one or two songs off of uh, Keep It Like a Secret on it. A lot of it is focused on uh, Perfect From Now On and a couple of other covers. Uh, and again, it's just uh, it's just really well done. It's it's Doug March. It's his showcase. He knew he was swinging for the fences uh, as an epilogue. They Yes, they did enough to get a reverence uh, from guys like me and Arturo that discovered him around the same time and loved that record and have stayed with him. And they were, they were able to stand Warner Brothers for a long time. So they accomplished their minimum goal, which was to keep their deal. But they never became stars. But, man, did they make their best effort. And it is recorded... Uh, for all of history on this record. So uh, my favorite uh, live record of all time, Built to Spills Live from 2000. Uh, immediately when you get done listening to us, go out and run and get and get this record and listen to it. Yeah. Uh, with that, uh, we've run through our uh, favorite live uh, albums. It's um, an extraordinary bunch. Uh, go out and uh, find uh, all 10. <laughs> Thank you.
talked a lot about CODAs in the last segment. Well, here's our CODA, which is where we dip into our vaults and pick out one. It uh, doesn't necessarily have to be obscure, just old, uh, older album that we love and we want you to love just as much. So, Arturo, what is your vault album for this week? My vault album is really not that old compared to the stuff that <laughs> we've been recommending, but it came out in 2000, which is 21 years ago, believe it or not. And it's by the British doom slash sludge metal band, Electric Wizard. This band has a cult following. They're, they, they're still around and they've been around for a while. since like, I think the mid to late nineties, they've been around and they, they had one fantastic, brilliant masterpiece of a record released in 2000. The name of the album is Dope Throne. Okay. And how I always describe Electric Wizard's music. Imagine Black Sabbath, even heavier, even darker, injected with large doses of LSD. <laughs> it's, ba- it's basically Black Sabbath on acid and even angrier. (laughs) They are dark, they are heavy, they are menacing, and they have a sense of humor. The album cover of Dope Throne is basically a a cartoon picture of Satan taking a smoking marijuana from a bong. (laughs) That's the album cover. And they kind of take, like Sabbath, they appropriate satanic imagery and they go further with it but with their tongue very much firmly entrenched in their cheek. (laughs) I mean, when you have song titles like I, the witch finder and we hate you and uh, kill all those who, no, sorry, destroy those who love God. (laughs) When when a band has song titles like this, you know, they don't take themselves that seriously. (laughs) If if they did, they'd still be, probably wonderful in some respects. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so basically this is super, super sludgy, heavy Black Sabbath on acid. A lot of their songs are monstrous riffs and a lot of their songs have these fading, trippy codas filled, drenched in feedback, almost sonic youthy type of feedback. So yeah, it's, it's like psychedelic, heavy acid Black Sabbath they're monstrously heavy and dope throne from 2000. That is the album to get. And they have, they, they've been spending the rest of their careers trying to like live up to that album. Um, so if you're into some like monstrous heaviosity, go listen to electric wizards, dope throne. Heaviosity, man. I like it. Yeah. Well, I like the idea of black Sabbath on acid. Uh, that, that, that's, that's an interesting image and it's interesting that you mentioned Sabbath as the influence for uh, your vault album uh, uh, this week because mine is and I'm cheating a little bit this is a, uh, a live record hey from, why not <laughs> uh, from 1982 this is from Ozzy Osbourne uh, the man himself and so this is an album called Speak of the Devil and it's a little bit of a lost nugget but uh, I personally love this record now little bit of a backstory on this. Uh, so this was after just a couple years after his divorce from Black Sabbath, and he's now in his L.A. metal phase. He's just come off his 
those couple of records with with Randy Rhodes. And so they want so his his record label because they can't monetize anything for Ozzy from Black Sabbath stuff because of a dispute. They come up with this idea. Well, we'll do a live album of Black Sabbath covers, uh, mm. and we'll make you money that way. And so his band at the time it was Randy Rhodes, uh, Rudy Zabo, uh, who became famous with Quiet Riot, and then a drummer who used to play with Black Oak, Arkansas, in the seventies that opened for Black Sabbath quite a bit. So, and everybody hated this idea. And Ozzy is at the height of his drunken power. He's I. I He's just basically he's just alcoholic, you know, his mind. And uh, so he's sees that. So nobody wants to do this record. And so they're preparing for it in the middle of the preparations. Randy Rhodes dies in a plane crash. Mm. And so they still have this schedule to uh, to be recorded in November 1982. And so to get ready for it, they have to do these rehearsals. And so they hire uh, Jack Gillis. From uh, who became famous for being Night Ranger's uh, uh, most consistent member. Uh, they bring him in. Now, it turns out that he might be the only guy in hard rock or heavy metal during that era that was, had no familiarity at all with the Black Sabbath catalog. So now they're recruiting him to do this Black Sabbath. How is that possible? How is that possible for anyone in hard rock to not be familiar I, with Black Sabbath? I'm just telling you what I read in preparation for this for this uh, this episode. And so he has to learn these songs in essentially a month. And so during the rehearsals for this, Ozzy is drunk and he doesn't show up at, for any of the rehearsals. And so I'm, you know, like once in a while, like I said, Wikipedia. You never, you never really want to quote from Wikipedia, but sometimes it's really, uh, really worth it uh, because uh, this is this is just wonderful. I'm I'm going to read a, a stretch uh, uh, from this, and uh, this is uh, to me it's very funny. So uh, it starts and talks about the rehearsals on September 19, 1982. The band and crew arrived in New York City to begin rehearsals for the two shows that would be recorded to comprise "Speak of the Devil" album. Over the following few days, Gillis, Sarzo, and Aldridge, that's the drummer, would rehearse in what Sarzo described as a, quote, gloomy midtown Manhattan studio, while Osborne himself was nowhere to be found. The band was given only five days to learn the songs, though in Aldridge's case, he was quite familiar with Black Sabbath's material after opening for the band countless times as a member of Black Oak, Arkansas in the 70s. As the band began rehearsing, Sharon Osborne arrived and informed them now, boys, don't expect to see much of Ozzy at rehearsals. He's not being very cooperative. Uh, the record company planned to include previously recorded live versions of Iron Man, Children of the Grave, and Paranoid, uh, featuring Rhodes on guitar, so Sharon told the band not even to bother rehearsing those particular songs. As rehearsals continued without Ozzy, the band was still coming to terms with the loss of Rhodes, and the morale was very low. The band members resented the fact that they were rehearsing for an Ozzy Osbourne album, while Osbourne himself could not be bothered even showing up. It was during this period that Sarzo, who was already recording Metal Health with Quiet Riot, made his decision to leave the band. So now it talks about the uh, the recording and the actual uh, uh, show. And so uh, this is sort of where it gets uh, it, it, it sort of gets uh, gets funny. Uh, so so he it, it, so it reads here. 
Osborne, who had not rehearsed the songs with the band at all, finally showed up for soundcheck for the day of the show, September 26, 1982, and had tremendous difficulty remembering the lyrics to many of the songs. During the show, <laughs> yeah, exactly. During the shows, he placed a folding chair with a desk lamp on top of it at center stage and placed a notebook with handwritten lyrics to the songs on the chair. Throughout the shows, he often stood by his chair singing as he read the lyrics from the notebook. The Ritz, which is the club in New York, which held just under a thousand people, was sold out for the performances. Uh, Sarzo described the audiences as rowdy and also described the acoustics converted you know, of the converted Latin ballroom as warm, intimate, and perfect for their needs. The band typically used side fill monitors to allow the musicians to hear the drums while playing on larger stages, but the Ritz's smaller stage forced them to be removed for these shows. This change forced Gillis and Sarzo to spend the majority of the show standing directly in front of the drum riser in order to, in order to hear Aldrich's drums over the intense volume uh, of the band's backline. Uh, the mood of, during the shows was casual, as the usual spectacle of Osborne's live performances was scaled back with the emphasis instead placed on capturing the tightest possible performances of the recordings. The recording plant's mobile studio was parked in an alley behind the Ritz to capture the performances on tape. The, perform the band members dressed down, not wearing their usual stage clothes, with Osborne himself sporting sweatpants and a bald head after drunkenly shaving off his familiar long hair a few days prior. So bald Ozzy in a suit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, bald, bald Ozzy in sweatpants, uh, hovering over a chair, reading the lyrics as he's as he's singing this. But despite all that, the album's a miracle. It's really, really good. Uh, the version of Never Say Die. Uh, I think is actually better than it is on the the source material. It's just a very LA thing. I think the version of Symptom of the Universe competes as well. I mean, these guys are actually talented musicians, and so the fact that Ozzy doesn't show up for the rehearsal, stumbles in, and they're able to pull this off, it's just an awesome record. So I know uh, lengthy explanation there, but uh, definitely got to check it out. Ozzy, singular character in rock and roll history about the only man in the world besides Jerry Lee Lewis that can be that drunk and that irresponsible and that ridiculous and then show up and just, just blow everybody away. So all hail rock and roll, all hail Ozzy, all hail speak of the devil. There you go. This sounds to me like, like, like Ozzy Osbourne doing Sabbath karaoke. <laughs> I mean, well, that's essentially what it is. It's, it's essentially, uh, again, nobody wanted to do this record. This was, this was some, harebrained idea to uh, make money for Ozzy based on Sabbath music. And so, but despite all the problems and all of that, they, they pulled it off and it's actually a really strong record. So, you know, it's, it, it it's, to me, it's, it's, it's a fun, it's, it's a fun story and it's just, it just kind of shows that, you know, Ozzy's lived a very charmed, albeit stoned life. Yeah. <laughs> And on that note, uh, we have come to the end of another curmudgeon rock report. Uh, hey, you know, amazingly enough, we we may actually be getting better, and we may actually be starting to figure out what the fuck we're doing, huh? Yeah, took us long enough. Yeah, you know, hey, it's five episodes, and uh, yeah, pretty exciting stuff. So uh, this was fun. Uh, live albums are uh, definitely have a warm place in my heart. If you couldn't tell by my soliloquies, um, <laughs> mine. <laughs> and, and your soliloquies. Yet next week will be part two of this uh, this little series on, on live music, where we will look at concert films, um, which, 
have taken many forms over the years, some cinematic and grand, others small and intimate, and uh, uh, others are kind of glorified music videos, but they're uh, tremendous watches anyway because they give you insight. So uh, we will definitely uh, dive into that canon uh, next week. So that's pretty exciting, huh? I know you're you're a rock. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. We're we're both rock movie guys. I'm probably more of a documentaries guy, and you're more of a concerts guy. I mean, is that fair? I'm both. I I got a lot of both in my in my external hard drive. <laughs> I got a lot of both. Yeah, I'm I'm heavier on the documentary side, and and not only that, but on the fictional movie like, like rock and roll like movie movies. Uh, I'm heavy on those as well. But uh, so no, that'll be a lot of fun. And hey, you know, like we always say, rock on. A uh, couple of things to mention before we leave. Uh, as always, uh, visit us on Twitter at, uh, at curmudgeonpod. Uh, feel free to hit us up on email at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a Patreon site uh, where we uh, upload our official uh, show notes to, um, and you can check those out there. You also have the option to uh, you know, get, give a brother uh, a tip, literally, uh, you know, this uh, this <laughs> Support those of us out here in the podcast wilderness uh, that are trying to build up a community and build and rise all the boats. So uh, you know, give us some love, throw $5 in our tip jar and be a, what we call uh, uh, contributing at the enthusiast level. So a uh, little bit of housekeeping there. So I feel good. The curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.